And okay, we're going to go ahead and get started. And we are in Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. And our goal is verses 1 to 15 tonight. Matthew chapter 10. And let's read the passage, then we'll pray and have our Bible study. Okay, Matthew chapter 10, verse 1. It says, Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Now the names of the 12 apostles are these. The first, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out after instructing them, Do not go in the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter any of any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. Freely you receive, freely give. Do not acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belts, or a bag for your journey, or even two coats or sandals or a staff, for the worker is worthy of his support. In whatever city or village you enter, inquire who is worthy in it, and stay at that house until you leave that city. As you enter the house, give it your, your greeting. <coughs> and if the house is worthy, give it your blessing of peace. <coughs> but if it is not worthy, take back your blessing of peace. Whoever does not receive you, nor heed your words, as you go out of that house or that city, shake the dust off of your feet. Truly I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time to meet together. And Lord, we thank you for providing this place for us to meet tonight. And Lord, for the ones who have been able to come and we do pray for your blessing to be upon us lord that you would help us to understand your word and that we would uh, believe it lord that you would make us to understand lord uh, all of your holy word so that we might uh, meditate and see lord wonderful things from your law so be with us tonight lord and bless us as we study and it is in christ's name that we pray amen okay so chapter 10 is jesus sending out his 12 and then uh, giving them a lengthy discourse on what it is that they're supposed to do as they go out. So the majority of the chapter is taken up with Jesus instructing them on what it is that they are to do as they go out. And in this, Jesus is preparing them, right? He's training them for the ministry that they're going to conduct after his time, right? Jesus' ministry was very short. He was only on the earth for three or only uh, doing his ministry publicly for about three years. So a very short amount of time when he was involved in this public ministry, and then it will be his apostles, and then those that they raise up who are going to take the gospel and go out into the world and are going to establish and build up the church of God, not only in Israel, but also throughout the world as well. So he's preparing them, training them for this. Already he's called them. Already they've been with him, and he's instructing them in that way as well. But here, he's going to send them out uh, by themselves, right? Without him going with them, two by two, into various cities and villages to preach the gospel and to perform this ministry. And then they'll come back and afterwards he'll debrief with them 
and give them further instruction and help them in those types of things. So this chapter is him uh, sending them out and then the instructions that he gives to them for how they're to conduct themselves as they go out into this ministry. Okay, and that's what it is taken up with. So let's start up in verse one and then we'll work our way through. Jesus, it says, summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. So here he calls the 12. Now, now of course, Jesus had other disciples, other followers, other true followers. But here it's the 12, the 12 that were chosen specifically by him to serve as his disciples. And they would be the apostles of Christ. Right. So they were selected from among his disciples to have this unique position, this unique authority that was given and conferred to the apostles. And this is the difference between the 12 and then the 72 that he will send out later. This greater body of disciples, he sends them out as well. And many of them performed a lot of ministry and did a lot of good. And we see a lot of them, uh, even as you go throughout uh, the epistles, especially like in Romans 16, when there the apostle was giving his greetings uh, to these various people, likely many of them were some of the disciples that followed Jesus during his earthly ministry and that were sent out and who also performed a lot of ministry as well and were going out and were a benefit and help to the apostles. But the 12 are specifically singled out as the apostles of Christ and Jesus spent the majority of his time with them, teaching them, training them for this ministry that would come after. So he calls the 12 and he gives them authority, right? His authority that resides in him that he possesses, he gives this or confers it onto them. And this is important to understand because ultimately all authority resides with Christ. It all comes from him. But then as we conform our life and our words to the words of Christ, then we can also possess the authority of Christ, right? Not our own authority, but it is his authority, his power. That's what is important. That is what is essential. And here it's obvious and clear that they are nothing, right? These are mere men, right? They have nothing on their own. They have no authority on their own. But here Christ confers to them his own authority. And now he expects them to go out and to, on behalf of him, tell the people what they need to know and what they need to hear. So they are ambassadors of Christ, God making his appeal through them. This is the way it works. So they are representing Christ. They possess his authority. And insofar as what they tell the people is consistent with the message of Christ, then they are accurately communicating his authority to the people. And the people are obligated and expected to listen to them just as they would listen to Christ. This is what the expectation is. And here specifically, he gives them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal of every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Now, this type of authority to perform miracles like this was given to them. Not everyone possesses this type of authority. However, all of the disciples of Christ possess the authority of his word, of his word. Insofar as we are saying what is found in the Bible, and this is the most important authority, right? Whether we can cast out demons or heal those who are sick or not, that is not what is most consequential. 
What is the most important is the word of Christ, is speaking and communicating the word of Christ. Because many people would say, oh, wouldn't it be wonderful? Not that it wouldn't be. It would be wonderful to have this type of authority, to be able to heal people of sickness and do those kinds of things. Yet those same people who long for that won't speak up and speak the word of Christ to people. But the greater authority is in preaching and teaching the word of God, telling people what the word of God says. So he has the authority he gives his authority to them, and in the same way, he gives his authority to us. That insofar, again, as what we are saying is consistent with what's in the word of Christ, then we possess the authority of Christ, and we should expect people to heed that authority, to believe, to obey the words of Christ, even if those words are coming from mere men, right? Human messengers like you and me, and even like the disciples and the apostles of Christ. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 and 20. Matthew 28, verse 18. says, And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So there, Jesus, this at his ascension, after his resurrection, when he's commissioning them to go out, he tells them that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Christ. He possesses all authority. Or as it says in Romans 13, verse 1, there is no authority except from God. All authority, legitimate authority, resides with, originates with God. He is the fount. He is the source of all authority. But that authority, he communicates to us. Right? Not that we ourselves possess this authority in and of ourselves, but we possess it in that he gives it to us. He grants it to us in the way of a gift. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, just as a representative of the king, will conduct business and instruct the subjects concerning the king's will, this is what we are to do as well. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 20 says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So there, we are ambassadors for Christ. The ambassador, again, representing his native country, his king, whoever it is that he serves, he represents that person, and he conducts whatever affairs in another country on behalf of his superior. And he tells them, he communicates to them, what is the will of his superior? And in this way, we are ambassadors of Christ. Christ is our authority. He is our head. He is our king. And what we are to do is to represent him to the people so that God is making his appeal to people through us. Through the human messenger, God makes his appeal if the messenger is accurately teaching and communicating to the people the word of God, what God expects. Right? And here he's begging them to be reconciled to God. This is what he's doing here in this uh, commissioning of the disciples to send them out two by two and to have this authority 
uh, to preach and to heal of diseases and cast out demons. Now, verse 2. Verses 2 to 4 list the disciples. And here, this list uh, is not in... They can be ordered in different ways. There was a, a hierarchy or... Uh, some of the disciples had a higher rank than others. Peter, James, and John. Those three were singled out and set apart, uh, and they were the ones that Jesus took up on the mountain on, of transfiguration. He also took them in, and not the others, whenever he raised the dead girl. Uh, he didn't take all of them. He took those three. Here, this list is, I think, by twos. The way that they were sent out, they were sent out two by two. So they went out together in pairs, and it's listing them according to the pairs in which they went out. And this is why uh, Andrew comes before James and John, because Andrew and Peter went together in this ministry, okay? Now, the names of the 12 apostles are these. The first, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. So here they are listed. And again, Jesus sent them out in pairs, two by two, because you need someone with you, right? Whenever you're doing this, it's always best if there's two or three people who can go together. That way, if you need help or if there's difficulty, you've always got a witness there. You have someone who can confirm, someone who is there to help you. It's, it's always better whenever there's a group that goes out, at least two or three, to do ministry like this together. And this is following the pattern of Christ. This is the way that he sent them out and then listed in the pairs in which they went out. Also, you notice that a few of these are brothers. Peter and Andrew are brothers and James and John are brothers as well. And this is also what we desire, that our kin, our natural kin, our family would also be our spiritual kin, right? Isn't that a great blessing for our brothers physically to also be our brothers spiritually, right? For a husband and wife to not only be, uh, have the bond of marriage, but to have the bond of faith for a father and a son, for a mother and a daughter. This is what we should greatly desire and pray that God would give this blessing to us and to our families, that there would be not only the bond of family, but also the bond of faith among us. Also, we notice at the end is Judas Iscariot. He's always mentioned last because he's a deadbeat. Okay, he's at the end of the road. And this is because he's the one who would betray him. Also, we got to feel sorry for Simon the Zealot, right? He had to be paired up with this bum. So he had to go with uh, Judas. Yet, oh, it always does mention that Judas Iscariot was the one who betrayed him. And it is a reminder to us that we need to perfect holiness in the fear of the Lord and that we need to be careful and test ourselves. And we, not, we should not uh, rest on our laurels and think that everything is good and great and we have nothing to worry about but we have to persevere and enter into the kingdom of Christ, right? Judas was one of the 12, and yet he fell away. He fell away. Not that he ever was a true convert. Of course, he was never a true convert. He was a thief the whole time. He was a pretender, but he was a good pretender. He was a very good pretender, and so we must be careful that this is not true of us. If we go back to Matthew chapter 7, Matthew 7 verse 21 says not everyone who says to me lord lord will enter the kingdom of heaven but he who does the will of my father who is in heaven will enter 
Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Wouldn't this apply to Judas right here, even in this very passage? Cast out demons in your name, perform miracles in your name. He gives them authority to do this. And Judas goes out and does it. He does that. And yet he was a worker of lawlessness. He did not know Christ. So we must be on guard and test ourselves, examine ourselves to make sure that we are in the faith. Okay, verse 5. It says, These twelve Jesus sent out after instructing them. Do not go in the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So these are the twelve sent out by Christ, and these are the instructions then that he gives them. And the rest of the chapter is the instructions. This is what he expects. This is what he wants them to do. Here he tells them, do not go into the way of the Gentiles, and don't enter any of the Samaritan cities. This trip that they're going out on is not going to be a very long one. It's going to be a short trip. So he confines them to a specific area and to a specific target, right? To a specific target. Not that Jesus ultimately has no concern and care for Samaritans or for Gentiles. We know that that's not the case because there were even Gentiles during his ministry that he healed and that he interacted with. And there were even Samaritans that he interacted with, such as John chapter four, the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well, and even the people of the town came out to him and he stayed with them for a couple of days preaching the gospel to them. So it's not that Jesus has no care for these things. However, in Romans 1, 16 and 17, it says that the gospel, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek, right? According to God's purpose and God's plan, the way that the gospel would proceed and go forth is that it would first go to the Jew, and then it would go to the Greek, to the Jew first, and then also to the Greek. That it was theirs first, not because of anything special in the Jews themselves, but according to the election of God, according to the purpose and the blessing of God. God gave it to them first, and then he sent it out to the Gentiles. And isn't this what we see in the book of Acts? Whenever the apostles would go into a city, First, they would look for Jews. They would go to the synagogue. They would look for them. They would preach the gospel to them. And then whenever the Jews would reject and revile, then they would shake the dust off their feet and say, we're going to the Gentiles. And they would go and preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Well, here, because this is a short ministry, it's not going to be, he's not sending them out for five years, but probably for a couple of weeks that they would be going out and doing this or a couple of days. So he wants them, don't go to the Gentiles and don't go to the Samaritans, but rather focus on the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Go to these Jewish cities and villages and preach the gospel to them. Preach the gospel to them. Also, in those areas, they're going to find people who have some knowledge of the Bible, who have some interaction with the Bible. So there's going to be common ground. And it's often, it's easier to talk to them about the gospel and the things of God than it is foreigners and those that are coming from pagan religions because there's so much that you have to deal with in those situations. So this is also uh, like taking baby steps. You give something easier first, and then whenever they prove themselves faithful in that, 
then you give to them the greater task, the more difficult task. And this is the way that Jesus is teaching by steps, right? By a progression in these types of things. Also notice in verse six, he calls them the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The lost sheep. Here, they're called sheep because of election. Because of election. These are those who have been chosen by God for salvation among the Israelites, but who are still lost in that they have not been called out of darkness and into light. So according to election, a person is either a sheep or a goat, right? Even while the sheep is still in his lost state, according to election, he is predestined for salvation in that he has been marked out by God for salvation and he will be called into that salvation even though while he's still living in his sin, he's behaving like a goat. He's living like a goat. He's living like the Gentiles in the lust of his flesh. But whenever that one who's been elected hears the gospel, what will he do? He will repent of his sins. He will repent because he is a sheep. The Holy Spirit will take the word of Christ and will use that word to give him life, to regenerate him and to give him life and to call him out of darkness, right? Out of his lostness. Right now, he's scattered out on the mountain. And when he hears the word of Christ, he's going to leave the mountain and come into the fold of Christ, right? This is the way it works. So that's what he means. You're going to go out into these villages. There are lost sheep of the house of Israel. You're going to preach the gospel. And those that are called, those that are elected by God, they're going to be called out of darkness and into light. They're going to repent of their sins and they're going to believe in Christ through the preaching of the apostles as they go out. So this is why they go to the lost sheep. So they're sheep in terms of election. They are lost in terms of they have not yet been called by the word of God to faith and repentance. And this is what they're going to do. And the means used by God to call the lost sheep out of darkness and into light is the preaching of the gospel. So that's the way it works. Faith comes from hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. If we go to John chapter 10, John chapter 10, and verse 14 says, I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me. Even as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will hear my voice and they will become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have the authority to lay it down. I have the authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my father. There in verse 16, he says, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them in also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. There he's referring to the lost sheep of the Gentiles. There's the lost sheep of the Israelites, and there's the lost sheep among the Gentiles. And what's going to happen to all of the lost sheep eventually? They're all going to be called through the voice of Christ 
into one flock with one shepherd, brought into one fold, or the one church of God, the assembly of the righteous. They're all going to be brought into the same body, to the same flock or same fold, with one shepherd. And who is the one shepherd? Jesus Christ. And how does he call them? Through his voice. They hear his voice and they follow him. When they hear the voice of Christ, they follow him. They leave their idolatry, they leave their sin, they repent, and they follow after Christ. This is the way it works. Now, in terms of the election, beforehand, the messengers have no idea. There's not like a, a symbol that's on them. There's not a black light you can put them under to, to determine. You can't look at their blood and examine it to determine who is elect and who is not elect. How is this manifested in this world to us? Through the response to the preaching of the gospel. When a person hears the gospel and they repent and believe, then it is evidence that they have been chosen by God because that is the basis for them doing that and then their perseverance in those things. So this is the way. We don't know who it is. So then what should we do? What should be our approach? What is their approach? Just go and preach. Whoever will listen to you, wherever you get an audience, preach the gospel to them. Preach the word of God to them. And if they are chosen by God, then they will listen. And if they're not chosen by God, then they will not listen. But it's not our uh, job to determine who's elect and who's not elect, and then only to preach the gospel to the elect. It doesn't say that. Our job is just to do what? Just to preach. Just to tell them whether they listen or not. That is our job. The means God uses is the preaching, and we should do it for the sake of the elect, to call them out of darkness into light. This is as the Apostle Paul says, he endures all things for the sake of the elect. He does it for their sake as he goes from city to city, preaching the gospel, calling the lost sheep out of darkness and into the light of God. Also, so Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30. Romans 8, 28. Romans 8, 28. It says, We know that God causes all things to work together for good, to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. So there, God foreknew first in that he, he loved them in advance. He loved them in advance. And because of his love that he set upon them, he predestined them for salvation, that they would be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And then those that he predestines, he calls. He calls them. They hear the voice of Christ calling them, and they repent of their sins. And then when there's faith and repentance, it leads to justification. And then justification ultimately leads to glorification. And there's a one-to-one-to-one-to-one -to -one -to -one correlation between all these. Everyone foreknown is predestined. Everyone predestined is called. Everyone called is justified. And everyone justified is glorified. Because Christ will not lose one of his sheep. Not one of his sheep will be lost because they've been given to him by the Father. 
And when did the Father give them to Christ? Before the world was even created. Before the world was created, he gave the sheep to Christ, and then Christ comes to accomplish their complete, ultimate redemption. Thoroughly accomplish it. It does not lose one single person. All right, verse 7. It says, And as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Here, the first thing that Jesus tells them to do is to preach. As you go, as you go on your way, the reason I'm sending you out primarily is to preach the gospel. Now, he will talk about healing, raising the dead, casting out demons, doing those types of things. And that has its place. But here, the place of the miracles is to support the preaching of the gospel. But what is primary, what is at the forefront has to be the preaching of the gospel because of what we read in John chapter 10. It is through the voice of Christ that Christ calls his sheep to his fold. And that is through the word of Christ. They are to preach, not their own opinions, not their own ideas, not the words of men, but what are they to preach? The word of Christ, God's word alone, Christ's word alone. This is the voice that people need to hear in order to be brought out of darkness and into light. So as you go, he says, you are to preach. This would be Romans chapter 10, verses 14 and 15. Romans 10, verse 14. It says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. Right? You have to call upon the name of the Lord in order to be saved. That's what he says in verse 13. But how can a person call on the name of the Lord if they've not believed in him? And how can they believe in him if they've never heard of him? And how can they hear about him unless someone preaches to them? And how can someone preach to them unless they are sent? Well, that's where it all starts. The sending. Well, what's Jesus doing here in John in Matthew 10? He's sending them out. He's sending them out so that they might go and preach, so that the sheep of Christ might hear, so that they will believe, so that they will call upon the name of the Lord, so that they will be saved. He is the one who sends them out. And he sends them out to preach the word. Then he gives them a summary. What are they supposed to preach? What is the content of their message? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that that's all that they said. These one, two, three, four, five, six, seven words. That they only had seven words and they just went around and repeated it over and over and over and over again. This is a summary, a short summary of what they are to teach. They are to explain what this means, what it means for the kingdom of God to be at hand and what God expects of the people because of this, right? What are the people expected because of this reality of the kingdom of heaven being at hand? And if we look over to Matthew chapter 3, we see that this message did not originate with the disciples. This isn't some new message that 
Jesus gives uniquely to them. But this was the message already being preached. Matthew 3, verse 1. Now in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then in chapter 4, verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now in chapter 10, he sends out his apostles. And what's he telling them to preach? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand hand. Now, every fact must be established on the evidence of two or three witnesses, right? Well, we have three witnesses here. John the Baptist, Jesus Christ. Actually, we've got uh, his 12 apostles here, so we've got 14 witnesses, but we'll just take them as a group, as a body, the, the apostles. They're all preaching what? The same exact message. Now, what do you think we should be preaching to people? Go get out. Isn't this what we should be preaching? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There is a day of judgment coming. There is a world to come. We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and then we will be judged. And we must repent of our sins and believe in Christ so that we are not condemned on the day of judgment. This is what people need to hear. They need to hear what this means, and it needs to be explained to them over and over and over again. We don't need new, a new message. We don't need a new technique. We don't need to reinvent the wheel. We don't need to do that at all. If it's good enough for John the Baptist, if it's good enough for Jesus, if it's good enough for his apostles, it's good enough for us. Now, sadly, it's not good enough for anyone today because very few people are preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Because this is, uh, you can't have a mega church if you're preaching that. But this is what people need to hear. This is what we need to be saying to them. And if we went back, and we could go all the way back into the Old Testament, this is what the prophets have been preaching since the very beginning. Yes. This is, since Genesis chapter 3, since sin entered into the world, this is the most pertinent message that people need to hear. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's what people need to know. Notice, he doesn't get to tell them, go out and tell everyone that God loves them. God loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life. He doesn't say that. It's repent. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the way that it is summarized. And this is what our ministry and our preaching must consist of as well. Now verses 8 and 9. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. Freely you received, freely give. Do not acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belts. Here, he is giving them the authority to do this. And this is unique to them, unique to them uh, in that none of us possess this authority uh, currently, or at least I don't. I don't know if any of you do. Okay, so, uh, but here he's giving them the authority to perform these miracles, the same kinds of miracles that Jesus is doing, right. right, that Jesus does. He does it on his own authority. They're doing it on his authority, right? They don't have the authority in themselves. He does, and now he gives it to them, and he wants them to do these types of things as well healing the sick, raising the dead even, right? They're even raising the dead, cleansing the lepers, casting out the demons. And this all to support the ministry of the word, to be a confirmation that these
God is with them. And therefore, if God is with them and they are messengers and representatives of God, then what is the more important part? Listen to them. Listen to them. Do what they say. So if they're telling you to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, then you better repent. And don't trust in your heritage. Don't trust and say, we have Abraham as our father, as they were prone to do, but rather bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Also, he says here, freely you received, freely give. The authority to cast out demons, the authority to heal the sick, the authority to raise the dead, to cleanse the lepers. This authority has been given to you freely. Jesus did not tell them, okay, if you give me $10,000 a piece, then I'll give you this authority, right? Actually, I've got a, a bronze package, a silver package, and a gold platinum package, okay? And based upon how much you give me, then I'll give you access to this is what they do today. It's really pathetic. Even churches, pastors, they'll do this type of stuff uh, and they'll sell, they'll peddle, they'll peddle spiritual things, books, resources, sermons, right? Based upon this type of stuff. There was actually one. I'm sorry, I can't help myself. There was one fraud and he would, based upon how much money you gave him a month, you got access to, to him. And one of them, he would even do a conference call with you once a month where you could get pointers and tips from him on how to be a better pastor. And he had different levels that you could pay for. Okay, they do this. It's, I'm not making any of this up. Okay, so you received it freely. I'm giving it to you freely. So you give it to others for free. Don't charge people to do these types of things, right? right? As if this would enter their mind, but he's warning them, don't peddle the gospel. Don't peddle spiritual things for filthy gain for sordid gain right isn't there big money in this wouldn't it be the opportunity to make a lot of money if you could do a legitimate healing how much would a father pay for his son to receive his sight how much would a father and mother pay to have their child raised from the dead well wouldn't they pay a fortune for that people would give their right arm to do something like that well, they have the authority now. They have the power to do this, but they shouldn't do it for money. They should do it freely because they received it freely from God. So they should do it freely for the good and for the benefit and sake of others. This also was one of the criticisms that Martin Luther had against the Roman Catholic Church whenever they were uh, getting people out of purgatory and into heaven for money. And he said, if the Pope has the authority to get people into heaven, he should get everyone into heaven out of goodwill and not do it for money, not do it for money. But people love money, right? The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And that's why Jesus is warning them, don't use this authority as an opportunity to pilfer the people and to make yourself and to enrich yourself. Don't be a Gehazi, right? Gehazi who loved money. Don't be like that. You've received it freely, so you give it to others freely. This is the way that we should be. In Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 8, we have an example of someone who wanted to obtain the Holy Spirit for this very purpose. Acts chapter 8, verse 
Fame and fortune. Fame and fortune. If you go back to Acts chapter 8, verse 9, it says, Now there was a man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And they all, from smallest to greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, This man is what is called the great power of God. But then, down in verse 18, after the apostles come, they find out what real power is. And now, guess who no one's listening to anymore? Simon. So Simon, verse 18, saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands. He offered them money, saying, Give this authority to me as well, so that everyone to whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Now, is he doing this with the right attitude? Of course, of course not. He's not thinking, he's not saying, Ooh, I, wanted, I want this authority for the good of people, for the sake of souls, for the salvation of souls. He doesn't care about that. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours, and pray the Lord that, if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. So there is someone wanting to obtain the Holy Spirit, because he wants to be someone great. Someone great. And often with greatness comes money. Fame and fortune. Fame and fortune. Well, okay, if you've got people going out into villages doing this kind of ministry, there's going to be a lot of attention. There's going to be a lot of attention and people are, are going to be wanting to know what's going on and there's going to be a lot of fanfare. So he's warning them about this, right? Don't get caught up in the hype and don't take money from people to do these types of things, okay? We have to be on guard against all covetousness. And that's why he says in verse nine, do not acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belts. So do not do this ministry for the sake of money to enrich yourself. Then in verse 10, or a bag for your journey or even two coats or sandals or a staff for the worker is worthy of his support. Here's the other side of the equation. So on the one hand, the minister should not be doing the ministry to pilfer the people. But on the other hand, the people should not be leeches who are not doing what's right and good and fitting in relationship to the ministry. Here, he's telling them, don't take a bag for your journey, two coats, a sandals, or a staff. Don't take the necessities, the things that you'll need for your daily living, right? Extra things. You're just going to go out, you're not taking money, you're not taking food, and you're going to have to depend upon the hospitality of people. Now, this is for the benefit of the disciples to teach them to trust in God, that God will provide all of their needs, but it's also for the good of the people. Because when they're coming and preaching the gospel to them, the people are receiving a spiritual gift, a spiritual benefit from the apostles. So what is the proper way for them to reciprocate their love and their affection for their ministers, for the ones proclaiming the word of God to them to meet their needs, to give them a place to stay, to provide the food that they need, to give them whatever is necessary for their journey. Right. So on the one hand, the ministers shouldn't be doing it for the sake of money. And on the other hand, the people should be grateful and they show their gratitude by providing for the needs of the one doing the ministry. This is the proper reciprocal relationship in the ministry between the minister and between the people. He's not doing it for money and they're not doing it 
for receiving it for nothing, but doing what is good and fitting in the sight of God. So he's not saying, when he tells them, acquire no money, no gold, no silver, no copper, he means it in excess. Of course, it's okay to receive hospitality, right? We should receive hospitality. Failure to receive hospitality is ingratitude. It's being ungrateful and, pride, and prideful to not let another person serve us, to think that we are above that. No, people, we should allow each other to exercise our spiritual gifts. How are we going to show hospitality that we're commanded to do if we won't let each other show hospitality to one another, right? We need to be doing this. So he is teaching them to depend. And then also it, it's good for the people to show their love and affection and appreciation for the ministry. Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. And this is also when Jesus is giving them instructions later, right before his death, he's going to recall this passage to them. And then he's going to tell them, the first time I told you not to take a money bag, not to take any of these provisions, now I'm telling you, take those things. When you're going out into the world on these long trips and you're going out here, this is a short trip and it's for the sake of teaching them to depend upon God. He doesn't mean that we should never plan. We shouldn't think about the future. We shouldn't have provisions, right? Of course we need to do those things. In life, if we're going on a trip, of course we gotta think about those things. But in this case, it's special in that he's trying to teach them to depend upon God and that God will provide all of their needs. As it says in Matthew 6, 25, for this reason, I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink nor your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow, nor do they reap, nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all of his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today, and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry then, saying, What will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. So there, don't worry about these things, he says. Don't be anxious about these kinds of things. Seek the kingdom of God. Isn't that what they're doing? They're going out promoting the kingdom of God, and God will add all these things to you, and he's going to teach them this truth through this experience, through their going out. Dependence on God through the hospitality of the strangers, of the people there in the cities. And here he calls them, uh, that he calls them, the worthy ones, right? Those who are worthy in it. The ones who appreciate and see the benefit of this, then they are the ones who are going to reciprocate and they're going to demand for you to come stay with them. They're going to demand that you come and eat their food. They're going to demand that you let them meet your needs. This is the way that they, they will be. In Romans chapter 15 And 
verses uh, 26 and 27. Matthew 15, 26 says, For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Yes, they were pleased to do so, and they are indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. So there, the Gentiles benefited spiritually from the Christians that originated in Jerusalem. That's where the gospel started. And they are the ones who benefited from this ministry in terms of spiritual things. And now they have the opportunity to reciprocate and show their 